All right, as we regather, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be finishing that chapter this morning. Just have two more chapters to go, a few more weeks, and we'll be completed with the book of Matthew. Then afterward, we are going to the book of Daniel. So as you turn uh, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to pick it up and read in uh, verse 47. I'm just going to read down to verse 56, although we will be completing the chapter this morning. Just for the guys in the booth, so you know I did not put a scripture in today. I forgot to do that as well. Many things I forgot to do. Not, not a good start to the year here. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Then immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Lord, we trust that you will give your blessing to the reading of your word this morning, and Lord, that you will lead us in all things, and that you will be the, the one who brings the understanding as we consider your word. May our hearts be open to all that you have for us, in Jesus' name, amen. You may remember, as we uh, are here in chapter 26, we are in uh, Passover week, and uh, Jesus is now on the night that he's being betrayed. Just a few hours earlier prior to this, uh, he had celebrated the, the last Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, and they had concluded and made their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and as you look through the Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of what happened on that night, and then, of course, In John's gospel, which he gives us a bit of a different perspective, beginning in John chapter 13, he he gives us from chapter 13 through 17 uh, a great depth on what took place that night. So it's always good when we come to the gospels, especially to these kinds of accounts, to go and to read the other accounts and to see what they have to to say to us and how they, sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, put all of the pieces together and fill in the background. So we're picking it up here in verse 47. This will be our third study in chapter 26. It's a long chapter. 
And we've come to this place where they went out to the garden, as we covered a few weeks ago. And Jesus had spent time there in Gethsemane, which of course means olive press. And as he prayed and sought the will of his Father, you may recall that he prayed that that great prayer where he said, "Uh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, referring to the cup of suffering he was about to be given by his Father. He was about to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53. If you're not familiar with that chapter, write it down and look it up. A chapter that describes from the very lips and the heart of God himself of what he would put his son through. And so Jesus knows he's about to go through this crucible of suffering. And so thus he had been praying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so now as he's finished praying and interacting with his disciples, it's almost the very moment he got up from prayer Then Judas comes with the tribe of soldiers to come and arrest him. And that's where we pick up our our passage today in verse 47. So while he was still speaking, Jesus, of course, speaking to the disciples, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer, that is Judas, had given them a sign, that is those who were with him, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So we begin to sort of understand the, the heart and the deceptiveness behind Judas. You know, in that culture, and, and maybe you've seen this uh, with people, this is true in many places in the Middle East and even in, in parts of uh, Eastern Asia, when people greet one another, they give each other a kiss on a cheek, sometimes uh, left, then right, and then back to left, or maybe just the left cheek, or maybe the left and the right. They have different customs. But Judas had taken something here that was a greeting, and not just a greeting, but a, a mark of friendship, a mark of Hey, I'm so happy to see you. And as he comes, he he sort of puts on airs here, and he says, greetings, Rabbi, and he kisses him. And the, the language here, the tenses indicate to us that Judas repeatedly kissed Jesus. Like he just went over the top, he overdid it. Now, have you ever had this situation where you've, in our culture, more, it's more customary to shake someone's hand and you start, and they, you say hello to them, you start shaking their hand and they just keep going and, oh, it's so good to meet you. And you're like, yes, and you're trying to get your hand away and they just keep shaking your hand. I've had that happen a few times myself. And this man, Judas, as he comes to Jesus, rather than giving him just a customary greeting, he just way overdoes it as if he's trying to say, this is the one, he's the one. Kiss, 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 kiss on both cheeks. And Jesus says to him, friend, why have you come? Judas has come with an ill intent in his heart to betray Jesus, to turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. We talked about this last time, the price of a common slave. He betrayed Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, friend, why have you come? And the disciples are there. Remember back at the table when Jesus says, tonight one of you will betray me. And they all looked at one another and they looked at Jesus and they said, is it me? Is it I? And they didn't know. And then uh, Jesus, uh, you know, Judas was sitting beside Jesus at the table there. And 
Um, They had an interaction and Jesus dipped a piece of bread in the sauce and gave it to Judas and he took it and ate it and then he got up and he left. And we're told from the gospel accounts that everyone thought that Jesus had just dispatched Judas on an errand. So I imagine in this moment when they see Judas coming with all of the people, the troops behind them, and he walked up to him and he kissed him, they must have been mortified. They must have been just standing there in horror, looking at the fact that it was Judas who had betrayed Jesus. And here in verse 50, when Jesus says to Judas, friend, why have you come? None of the gospel writers record an answer. You see, because Judas had no answer. He couldn't respond to Jesus. Jesus still treating him Kindly, he says, friend, why have you come? Of course, he knew. And suddenly, verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the other gospels that that was Peter. And remember back at the table, they had talked about having swords and all of that. And Jesus says, you don't need swords. My kingdom's not of this kind of thing here. We're we're not a kingdom of violence. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place. And again, the other gospels, Luke especially tells us that he picked up the ear and he healed it. And we are told that this was Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? You see, we, we forget that everything that Jesus did was pointing us to the Father, wasn't it? And he said this over and over during his ministry. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I imitate the Father. Whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. And of course, they had just overheard him praying in the garden, saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And as he says here, do you not think that I can now pray to my Father? And he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. How many is this? Well, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And he says, do you not think that he can provide me, my father can provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Do the math. I know some of you are excited about math. Others of you don't care. Uh, 72,000 angels. Wow. Jesus is saying, don't you think that I could just pray and my Father would take care of me? You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19, there was a story of an angel who was dispatched to battle, and maybe you know this story. And then one night, one angel killed, he slayed 185,000 soldiers. One angel, one legion, 6,000, 12 legions, 72,000. I mean, do the math. This is like the population of, the, of planet Earth. If you said each angel could, could, could take care of easily 185,000 people. I mean, Jesus is just saying, look, I can pray and God will take care of it. But it wasn't God's will, you see, for him to intervene in that moment because God had a plan 
for Jesus. And this is so important for us to not miss here this morning. Jesus had to walk through the plan that God had for him. He had to submit himself to the Father's will. And Jesus even goes on to say in verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had been telling the disciples all along the things that must happen. The Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and he must be given over to the hands of the enemy and he must suffer at their hands. He must be crucified and he must die. And on the third day, he must rise again. So Jesus said these things here to Judas and to his disciples. Then in verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said now to the multitudes, to all of these people, at least probably 600 to 1,000 have come out with Judas. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. Now Jesus conducted himself openly. He was always teaching. He always made himself available to people. He would visit them in their homes and talk to them on the street and teach them in the synagogue and in the temple. He was always interacting with people. He was always publicly available. But all this was done that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Remember how earlier in the evening at the table, Jesus had said that Judas would betray him. And then as they were talking and and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And Peter said, oh, even if all these pointing to his brothers there, even if they betray you, I'll never betray you, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. And here they are in the garden and the soldiers are there, Judas is there. And Jesus is being taken into custody illegally. He's being arrested for something he didn't do. He did nothing except righteousness and truth. And in that moment, it says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. I've mentioned to you before how much I like this man, J.C. Ryle, and I'd like to read a little paragraph from him that talks about this, this situation here of the disciples forsaking him and running away. And it said, let us notice in the last place How little Christians know the weakness of their own hearts until they are tried. We have a mournful illustration of this in the conduct of our Lord's apostles. The verses we have read conclude with the words, Then all the disciples left him and fled. They forgot their confident assertions they made just a few hours before. They forgot that they had declared their willingness to die with their master. They forgot everything but the danger that stared them in the face. The fear of death overcame them. They left him and they fled. How many of us as professing Christians have done the same? How many under the influence of excited feelings have promised that they would never be ashamed of Christ? They have come away from the communion table or the striking sermon, or the Christian meeting full of zeal and love, and ready to say to all who cautioned them against backsliding, is your servant a dog that he should do this thing? And yet in a few days these feelings have cooled down and passed away. A trial has come, and they have fallen before it. They have forsaken Christ. And isn't this so true of us? I have to say that I identify with that because... 
I've been in those situations. I've been to a conference or in a great time of worship and just walked away feeling so energized. And it's, it's wonderful and that we should uh, draw those things from our time of being in God's word and being with God's people and being in his presence in worship. But the point here is don't overestimate the strength of our flesh. Our flesh is weak. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know, of course, at this point, as we move on to verse 57, that Jesus is now being taken to this illegal trial. First, he's being taken by the Jews to be tried basically for blasphemy. And they are trying to find reasons why, reasons why they can not only put him in jail, but their ultimate goal was to kill him. They were looking for justification to put him to death. The other passages in the scriptures that you may want to write down if you're taking notes this morning are Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and John chapter 18. Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, these are the other accounts of what's happening in this passage that we are in here this morning. And so as we move on to 57, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. We know, according to the Old Testament, that the high priest was to serve until death when he was appointed. But we also know that when the Romans came and invaded Israel, that they took charge of the religious system to a degree, and they made the high priest an appointed office under their control as opposed to being under the control of the Scriptures. This way, they could be certain of having a religious leader who would cooperate with their policies. So they basically installed their man into that position. So Annas had served as the high priest uh, from 86 to 15, and five of his sons as well had been serving in the priestly ministry. Then Caiaphas, who was actually his son-in-law, was the one who was appointed by the Romans to succeed him. And he took office in A.D. 18 through A.D. 36. The point of this is that there was a a spiritual priest and there was a political priest. So Annas was the spiritual priest and Caiaphas was the political appointee. So in this moment, of course, they led Jesus away to Caiaphas, who was the recognized high priest. And of course, he would bridge the gap. If he could validate the trumped up charges, he would pass that along to the Romans and hopefully get their cooperation. Now, Jesus on this same night in the upper room in John's account had said to the disciples, John sixteen thirty two, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So at this point, the disciples have deserted Jesus. He's being taken into custody and being taken to Caiaphas' house to begin this set of illegal trials. We also know from John's account And I think this is so important for us to understand because we just talked about Jesus saying, couldn't I call down 12 legions of angels? Jesus, in his interaction with the crowd that came to take charge of him, John 18, verse (coughs) 4, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Then they answered him and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And Jesus said to them, um, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Uh, and when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So in that moment, as Jesus identified himself, he identified himself as the I am. And just the force of his words caused them to fall back on the ground. And I share that because I want you to understand that in that moment, Jesus had said, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And so now they are taking him back to Caiaphas' house. They are delivering him over to the council. And we know according to Jewish law, here's a few things so we can understand and calibrate ourselves about what's happening on this evening. According to Jewish law, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover. We are smack in the middle of the Passover. We are on Passover day. Remember the Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Wednesday at 6 p.m. became Thursday, which was the Passover day. It was the day that Jesus was going to be crucified. So we are in Wednesday night, but we are on the day of the Passover technically. And so criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover. This is happening. This is illegal according to the Jewish law. Again, according to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait one night to allow for feelings of mercy to rise. They are rushing this through. They're pushing it through the system very, very quickly. According to Jewish law, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses at least who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. So they had very strict policies and regulations around how the trial had to be conducted. Again, according to Jewish law, false witness was punishable by death. Nothing was done to the many false witnesses in Jesus' trial. In fact, they were sought out. Here, under Jewish law, false witnesses were to be prosecuted. According to Jewish law, finally, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence of guilt was offered. So that was presumed innocent until proven guilty, but it started with a proving of the innocence before the evidence was brought against the guilt of the individual. All of these things have been violated and thrown out the window for the sake of convenience to put Jesus to trial and to put him to death as quickly as possible. So in verse 58 Peter followed Jesus at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. And we know, of course, Jesus had told Peter, he had warned him that you're going to betray me this night. You're going to uh, say you don't know me. You're going to deny me. One commentator had said this, each of us must decide, will it be the sword or the cup? Will I resist God's will? or submit to God's will. The cup usually involves suffering, but that suffering ultimately leads to glory. We need not fear the cup, for it has been prepared by the Father, especially for us. He knows how much we can take, and he mixes the contents in wisdom and love. And Peter reveals to us a little bit about ourselves, a little bit about our flesh. Let's read through what happened to Peter as he encountered different people on this night. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the elders 
And all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, uh, excuse me, they found none, but at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And of course, that was referring to the temple of his body, not the temple of God. And they took that very seriously. In fact, to them, this would be akin to us today in our heightened security society of someone saying, I intend to blow up, you know, the Capitol or something like that. They took it essentially as a terrorist threat, and that's what they were looking for. And the high priest rose and said to him, verse 62, do you answer nothing? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So they're going after him, going right for the jugular here. And this act of putting him under oath was something by law. It was like somebody injected you with sodium pentothal, the truth serum. It's like you must, you must act, you must speak, you must tell us the truth. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. In other words, yes, it is true that I am the Messiah. And he goes on to say, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, capitalized, referring to God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees when they were writing or copying the scriptures, or when something was written about God, when they came to the name of God, to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they would not spell it out completely. They only spelled it out with consonants. They shortened it. And of course, they went through this elaborate process every time they did that. And in like manner, they would not speak the name of God. And so they often had other words they would use to refer to God. And this word here, the power, was one of the many ways they had to refer to God himself. And so Jesus is saying to them here, using language that they can understand, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heavens, of the heavens. There's many scriptures we could go to. Psalm 110, Jesus being spoken of there, a messianic psalm. Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. These men knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel called the Messiah the Son of Man. And so Jesus pulling all these things out. And these these things were like gasoline on the fire to them. Calling himself the Son of Man. Saying the power. Saying, uh, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. You know, in a position of authority. The right hand of God was the position where the Messiah would sit. And so no doubt they understood these things. They understood these allusions and these references. This was very clear to them. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes, which is a witness of blasphemy, saying he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. Now essentially putting everyone in the room under oath saying, you've all heard it. You heard it, right? You heard what he said. And what he said was blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. 
This is what they were looking for. This was the moment that they were looking for. And then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. The other gospels tell us they'd put a bag over his head. And they began to do this incredibly vile treatment of him, again, referring you back to Isaiah 53 and even Isaiah chapter 50 as well, where it talks about that they plucked out his beard and how they had treated him and they beat him mercilessly. And so these, these things now where they're, <clears throat> they're treating Jesus in such a terrible way, spitting on him, beating him, striking him with the palms of their hands, which was a sign of disgrace. To slap someone in the face with your open palm was a way of saying, what a fool you are. Verse 68, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? You say you're the Messiah? You're a prophet? Then you should know who just hit you. Now, Peter sat outside the courtyard, and again, the other Gospels gives us a great picture of this. Peter's there looking. He's watching intently from a distance everything that is happening. And a servant girl came to him, saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. And it's interesting how the Lord allowed these different people to be a part of the testing of Peter. When it says a servant girl, it's talking about a young girl, you know, someone who in, in their society would have been really, in a sense, a nobody. And this little servant girl comes by and says, you were with Jesus of Galilee, and she, she sees him watching what's happening. But it says in verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you were saying. Now, I imagine, I think we can all probably try to put ourselves in this situation, that he's saying this out of fear of ending up in the room with Jesus and the same thing happening to him. I mean, that would only be common, right, to, to have that kind of a fear. So let's not be too hard on Peter as we think about these things. Verse 71, and when he had gone out to the gateway, <clears throat> another girl saw him and said uh, to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. The other gospels say, we recognize that he had a Galilean accent. And just like we have accents for regions in our country today, they had regions, regional accents there. And so they knew that uh, Peter was one of the Galileans who was with Jesus. And so they said, your speech betrays you, your accent betrays you. And then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. So it's interesting, these three denials of Peter. The first one, he sort of pleads ignorance. I don't know what you're talking about. The second one, he says with insistence. You know, he denied it with an oath. And then in the third one, he uh, denies it with indignance, saying as he began to curse and swear. You know, become more intense in the way that he was denying the Lord. And Peter, verse 75, remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. As we think about Peter, 
And again, let's not be too hard on him. Let's consider what was it that was going through Peter's mind. And ultimately, we don't know, but we can surmise a little bit by putting ourselves in the same situation. And surely we've been in this situation before ourselves where we've been under pressure of some kind. Maybe it's not the pressure to deny Jesus, but we've been, been put in a situation where we're just, we're just, you know, all eyes are on us and all of a sudden people are watching us and they're wanting to know something from us. And in that moment, our instinctive uh, out of fear response is to find a way to, to make our point, to, to deny something or to prove that I'm telling the truth. And, you know, we have these expressions, don't we? You know, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. And we find these ways to try and convince people that, you know, of who we are and what we're saying and that what we're saying is true. And remember, Peter earlier had been there with Jesus. And of course, in those moments with Jesus, he was so encouraged. He was so energized You know, Lord, I'll be with you. I'll be the last one to deny you. All these other guys will do it first, but I'll be loyal to you. You can always count on me, Jesus. And I think when we come down to what's happening to Peter here and we study it, let's ask the question, why did he deny Jesus? What was behind it? And I think very simply what was behind it, which is what's behind our failures, is our self-centeredness. It's our selfishness. You know, Peter wanted to be identified with Jesus as long as Jesus was with him. He wanted to be identified with Jesus as long as Jesus was there to protect him. He felt safe in the presence of Jesus, but now Jesus is not with him. Jesus is separated from him. Jesus is now going down his own path that the Father has for him. And now Peter's beginning to realize as he sees Jesus over there suffering unjustly at the hands of those who are wanting to put him to death. He's he's got fear in his heart. And certainly we have all felt that before. And as we think about Peter, again, let's not be too hard on him because I think one of the many points of the scriptures as we go through these these accounts and these lessons is so that we understand. What if I was Peter? What if I was standing there? What if I was the one walking through this night in those different situations and people are saying, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And the fear of, are they going to do to me what they're doing to him? Now, at that moment, Peter probably didn't fully understand that Jesus was about to be crucified, but he knew whatever it was, it wasn't good. I mean, was Peter possibly thinking, if I don't deny him, I could be, in a sense, that fourth cross? You know, there was three crosses that day. As it played out, there was Jesus and the two thieves. Peter may be thinking, just out of self-preservation, I don't want to be in there with him, even though I said I wanted to. We have to understand, as, again, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, on this night, Jesus was betrayed, he was arrested, and he was denied. Everyone who said they loved him and were loyal to him had deserted him. You know, often when we go through relational difficulties and we have a friendship that breaks down and something happens, we become devastated by that, and especially if betrayal was involved. 
We look at that situation, we look at that person, and we can begin to to think about or to look at that person who, in our minds at least, betrayed us, and we can think, think so ill of them and think so evil of them, but remember how Jesus treated Judas. All the time, Jesus knew Judas. He knew who he was. He knew that he was going to betray him. He knew that Judas wasn't honest, and yet he treated Judas as a friend. And this night, of course, Peter broke down. All the disciples broke down, and they betrayed Jesus. And out of their self-centeredness and their self-preservation and their fear, they ran from Jesus and they denied Jesus. And so don't we do the same things. But remember, we don't want to end it here. And John's gospel, excuse me, Matthew's gospel doesn't finish this for us the way John's gospel does. But Jesus in John 21, he, he meets Peter. We know the story. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And remember there, he restores Peter. He doesn't condemn Peter for what he did. He's now on the other side of the cross. He's resurrected. And he's met Peter and he's come to him face to face. And he says, do you love me? After all that Peter had been through, he's like, well, Lord, you know I love you. But remember in that interaction, there's a play on words going on. There's phileo, a word for love, which is sort of like a strong friendship. And then there's agape. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Do you love me with that unconditional love? And Peter's saying, I phileo, you know I'm a friend, Lord. And Jesus meets him where he is. And and he told Peter, and he told all the disciples, one day when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll understand. And the Spirit of God, of course, did come upon them at Pentecost. And who preached that first sermon? It was Peter, right? And we see the picture in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4 of a man who has been forgiven and restored and filled with the Spirit of God. A completely different man than the man we see here on this night who is cowering in fear and who is filled with selfishness and self-centeredness. Again, I'll finish with J.C. Ryle. Let it be a settled principle in our religion he uses the word religion to mean our Christianity, of course, that if we love inward peace, we must walk closely with God. We see in Peter's bitter tears the grand mark of difference between the hypocrite and the true believer. When the hypocrite is overtaken by sin, he generally falls to rise no more. He has no principle of life within him to raise him up. But when the child of God is overtaken, he rises again by true repentance and by the grace of God, he amends his life. Let no one flatter him or herself that he may sin with impunity because David committed adultery and because Peter denied his Lord. No doubt these holy men sinned greatly, but they did not continue in their sin. They repented greatly. They mourned over their, their falls. They loathed and abhorred their own wickedness. Well would it be for many if they would imitate them in their repentance as well as in their sins. Too many are acquainted with their fall, but not with their recovery. Like David and Peter, they have sinned, but they have not, like David and Peter, repented. Peter fell. Peter sinned. So did David, but of course they repented, right? They didn't stay there. They didn't wallow in their misery. They turned their hearts back to the Lord. 
And we read there in that last verse, verse 75, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter remembered this, and we are told he went out and wept bitterly. We may fail. We may fail the Lord. We may fail each other in the body of Christ. We may fail in our marriage relationships or in friendships. But there's always redemption. You see, there's always hope. And one of the things that I just feel like the Spirit spoke to me as I was just walking, working through this myself is, you know, this morning, if you have someone in your life who has betrayed you or has sinned against you, they're not your enemy. There's someone who, just like Peter, they fell prey to their flesh. Whatever it was that caused them to, that, to come to that place of sinning or sinning against you, you see, like Peter sinning against Jesus, there's room for forgiveness, there's room for restoration. You see, that's, that's God's heart, isn't it? We, can, we know that's God's heart. And so must we forgive those who have hurt us. So must we, like Jesus, do our best to restore them. There's a beautiful verse in Romans chapter 12 that says, as far as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all men. Maybe that other person doesn't want peace, but you do. At least do the right thing. Extend the, the right hand. Extend gratitude. Extend forgiveness because that's what God through Christ has done to us. And even if it's happened to us, maybe we're that person. Maybe we're the one who offended. Maybe we're the one who betrayed. Or maybe we don't think we did, but the other person thinks we did. Then we need to humble ourselves. And go to that other person and just say, forgive me for I've sinned. Don't get caught up with, well, you know, I didn't really do it. I'm just saying it to kind of get a meeting with you. No, no, no. Just humble yourself before them and apologize and ask for forgiveness. You see, God cares about forgiveness. God cares about restoration. And even though Jesus was betrayed and arrested and denied And it wasn't just Judas, you see, although Judas' betrayal was horrible, Judas never repented. But the other disciples, the other 11, they repented, they came back, didn't they? And Jesus revealed himself to them and he restored them. And God wants to do that in our lives and he wants us to be that way to other people. This is why I've, I've just enjoyed so much watching this video series, The Chosen. Uh, in the series uh, session one of season two, we were watching it on New Year's Eve, and I was so struck by the fact that the angle they took of uh, the Good Samaritan, I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, sorry to spoil it for you, spoiler alert. Um, remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who had gotten robbed and, and beat, uh, uh, brutally beaten by the road, and there were different men who came by uh, who looked at him and they, they just kind of walked past him and left him for dead. And obviously there was someone who had assailed him and attacked him and then Jesus talked about the good Samaritan who came by and of course helped him. Well, in, the, in that season, what they, in this episode rather, what they did is Jesus goes to the house of one of the guys who was the guy who attacked him and who was robbing him because he himself was poor and he needed money. So he was becoming that person who was, who was an attacker. And so Jesus goes to this guy's house, and this guy's there like, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be here. Jesus says, I know who you are, and we're still here. And he looks around at the other disciples, and they're all sitting there smiling at him. And he just pours out his heart 
This man just, Jesus just looked at him and he just said, just tell me, tell me what you've done. And this man told him the whole story of what he did. And in that moment, you're sitting there going, wow, this is crazy, right? You're listening to a confession from a guy who did this heinous crime. And then Jesus basically says, you know, God forgives you. I forgive you. And he gets up and he gives him a hug. And he says, you know, welcome, brother. And the next day, that guy comes to synagogue. He hadn't been to synagogue in who knows how long, maybe, maybe forever. And he comes in and he sits down. And what had happened that morning when he woke up? You see, that man had a, he had a hurt leg. He had a broken leg uh, that happened through that incident, right? He got injured severely. So he was carrying sort of this scar with him of his sin. And he wakes up the next morning there with his wife and his little girl, and, and God's healed him. His leg is whole. He can, he can jump. And so he goes to synagogue, and he sits down, and Jesus begins to read the scriptures. And this man, your heart, is just, you're just sitting there crying. I was sitting there crying watching this. And it's just a lesson, right, of what God wants to do. God did it in Peter's life. This is not the end of the story for Peter. This is not the end of the story for the disciples. And it's not the end of the story for us. Amen. He loves us. And he wants us to love others with his love. The forgiveness that we've been given, he wants us to extend that same forgiveness to others. He doesn't want us to hold grudges. Certainly we've offended him way worse than anyone else has ever offended us. Could anyone ever offend me as much as I've offended Jesus? No. Let me just help you with that answer in case you're wondering. No. So Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture. Lord, help us to be these kinds of people. And Lord, it can't happen because we simply just determine within ourselves that we're going to be a certain way. Certainly Peter and the other disciples said that night, Lord, I'll never deny you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Go beyond our good intentions. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your word. Give us that power that we need to live moment by moment, day by day. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. For those of us here listening this morning, online, or even here in this room who may not know you, uh, Lord, we just ask that this would be the moment where they would turn their heart to you and say, Jesus, come into my life. I want that kind of forgiveness. I am so unworthy, and we all are. But Jesus came to die for the unworthy, to make us worthy, to make us presentable to God. And so, Lord, for those of us who don't know you, we just, right now, we just reach out to you in faith and say, Lord, come into my life and change me. Make me new. Forgive me, Lord. And Lord, for those of us here this morning who know you and who love you, and we just need that encouragement to walk by faith, to trust you, to know that you're bigger than my feelings, you're bigger than my fears, you're bigger than what my reality is. God, you go so far beyond, you supersede anything that I know and I understand. In fact, you tell us in your word that if we pray, and we seek your face, that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Lord, as we stand at the precipice of 2022, we don't know what this year holds, but we pray that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
that we, we would be infused with, with power and with faith. And that we would walk through this year. Maybe we don't know what we're going to encounter, Lord. There's 363 more days ahead of us. But we know who holds the future. And we trust in you, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. And Lord, may we be true to you. And even if we slip and fall, Lord, we want to get back up. We want to come back. We don't want to stay in a place of deadness. We want to walk in the newness of life. Lord, maybe there are some here this morning who just need to hear those words from your lips. My son, my daughter, you're forgiven. You're restored. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.